Chapter Seven, Part Two of the Sovereignty of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Roberts. Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. Chapter Seven, Part Two: The Sovereignty of God and the Human Will, Part Two. Two: The Bondage of the Human Will. In any treatise that proposes to deal with the human will, its nature, and functions, respect should be had to the will in three different men, namely, unfallen Adam, the sinner, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In unfallen Adam, the will was free, free in both directions, free toward good and free toward evil. Adam was created in a state of innocency, but not in a state of holiness, as is so often assumed and asserted. Adam's will was therefore in a condition of moral equipoise. That is to say, in Adam there was no constraining bias in him toward good or evil, and as such Adam differed radically from all his descendants, as well as from the man Christ Jesus. But with the sinner it is far otherwise. The sinner is born with a will that is not in a condition of moral equipoise, because in him there is a heart that is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, and this gives him a bias toward evil so too with the lord jesus it was far otherwise he also differed radically from unfallen adam the lord jesus christ could not sin because he was the holy one of god before he was born into this world it was said to mary the holy spirit shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the son of god luke one thirty five speaking reverently then we say that the will of the son of man was not in a condition of moral equipoise that is capable of turning either toward good or evil the will of the lord jesus was biased toward that which is good because side by side with his sinless holy perfect humanity was his eternal deity now in contradistinction from the will of the lord jesus which was biased toward good and adam's will which before his fall was in a condition of moral equipoise capable of turning toward either good or evil the sinner's will is biased toward evil and therefore is free in one direction only namely in the direction of evil the sinner's will is enslaved because it is in bondage to and is the servant of a depraved heart in what does the sinner's freedom consist this question is naturally suggested by what we have just said above the sinner is free in the sense of being unforced from without god never forces the sinner to sin but the sinner is not free to do either good or evil because an evil heart within is ever inclining him toward sin let us illustrate what we have in mind i hold in my hand a book i release it what happens it falls in which direction downwards always downwards why because answering the law of gravity its own weight sinks it suppose i desire that book to occupy a position three feet higher then what i must lift it a power outside of that book must raise it such is the relationship which fallen man sustains toward god whilst divine power upholds him he is preserved from plunging still deeper into sin let that power be withdrawn and he falls his own weight of sin drags him down god does not push him down any more than i did that book let all divine restraint be removed, and every man is capable of becoming, would become, a Cain, a Pharaoh, a Judas. How then is the sinner to move heavenward? By an act of his own will? Not so. A power outside of himself must grasp hold of him, and lift him every inch of the way. The sinner is free, 
but free in one direction only, free to fall, free to sin. As the word expresses it, for when ye were servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Romans 6.20 The sinner is free to do as he pleases, always as he pleases, except as he is restrained by God, but his pleasure is to sin. In the opening paragraph of this chapter, we insisted that a proper conception of the nature and function of the will is of practical importance, nay, that it constitutes a fundamental test of theological orthodoxy, or doctrinal soundness. We wish to amplify this statement and attempt to demonstrate its accuracy. The freedom or bondage of the will was the dividing line between Augustinianism and Pelagianism, and in more recent times between Calvinism and Arminianism. Reduced to simple terms, this means that the difference involved was the affirmation or denial of the total depravity of man. In taking the affirmative, we shall now consider. 3. The impotency of the human will. Does it lie within the province of man's will to accept or reject the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? Granted that the gospel is preached to the sinner, that the Holy Spirit convicts him of his lost condition, does it, in the final analysis, he within the power of his own will to resist or to yield himself up to God? The answer to this question defines our conception of human depravity. That man is a fallen creature, all professing Christians will allow, but what many of them mean by fallen is often difficult to determine. The general impression seems to be that man is now mortal, that he is no longer in the condition in which he left the hands of his Creator, that he is liable to disease, that he inherits evil tendencies, but that if he employs his powers to the best of his ability, somehow he will be happy at last. Oh, how far short of the sad truth! Infirmities, sickness, even corporeal death are but trifles in comparison with the moral and spiritual effects of a fall. It is only by consulting the Holy Scriptures that we are able to obtain some conception of the extent of that terrible calamity. When we say that man is totally depraved, we mean that the entrance of sin into the human constitution has affected every part and faculty of man's being. Total depravity means that man is, in spirit and soul and body, the slave of sin and the captive of the devil, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 2. This statement ought not to need arguing. It is a common fact of human experience. Man is unable to realize his own aspirations and materialize his own ideals. He cannot do the things that he would. There is a moral inability which paralyzes him. This is proof positive that he is no free man, but instead the slave of sin and Satan. Ye are of the, your father the devil, and the lusts, desires of your father ye will do. John 8.44 Sin is more than an act or a series of acts. It is a state or condition. It is that which lies behind and produces the acts. Sin has penetrated and permeated the whole of man's makeup. It has blinded the understanding, corrupted the heart, and alienated the mind from God. And the will has not escaped. The will is under the dominion of sin and Satan. Therefore the will is not free. In short, the affections love as they do, and the will chooses as it does, because of the state of the heart, and because the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, there is none that seeketh after God. Romans 3.11 We repeat our question. Does it lie within the power of the sinner's will to yield himself up to God? Let us attempt an answer by asking several others. Can water, of itself, rise above its own level? Can a clean thing come out of an unclean? Can the will reverse the whole tendency and strain of human nature? 
Can that which is under the domain of sin originate that which is pure and holy? Manifestly not. If ever the will of a fallen and depraved creature is to move Godward, a divine power must be brought to bear upon it, which will overcome the influences of sin that pull in a counter-direction. This is only another way of saying, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. John 6.44 In other words, God's people must be made willing in the day of his power. Psalm 110, verse 3 As said Mr. Darby, If Christ came to save that which is lost, free will has no place. Not that God prevents men from receiving Christ, far from it, but even when God uses all possible inducements, all that is capable of exerting influence in the heart of man, it only serves to show that man will have none of it, that so corrupt is his heart, and so decided his will not to submit to God, however much it may be the devil who encourages him to sin, that nothing can induce him to receive the Lord, and to give up sin. If by the words, freedom of man, they mean that no one forces him to reject the Lord, this liberty fully exists. But if it is said that, on account of the dominion of sin, of which he is the slave, and that voluntarily he cannot escape from his condition, and make choice of the good, even while acknowledging it to be good, and approving of it, then he has no liberty whatever, italics ours. He is not subject to the law, neither indeed can be, hence they that are in the flesh cannot please God. The will is not sovereign, it is a servant because influenced and controlled by the other faculties of man's being. The sinner is not a free agent because he is a slave of sin. This was clearly implied in our Lord's words, If the Son shall therefore make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John 8.36 Man is a rational being, and as such responsible and accountable to God. But to affirm that he is a free moral agent is to deny that he is totally depraved, that is, depraved in will as in everything else. Because man's will is governed by his mind and heart, and because these have been vitiated and corrupted by sin, then it follows that if ever man is to turn or move in a Godward direction, God himself must work in him both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 Man's boasted freedom is in truth the bondage of corruption. He serves diverse lusts and pleasures. Said a deeply taught servant of God, Man is impotent as to his will. He has no will favorable to God. I believe in free will, but then it is a will only free to act according to nature, italics ours. A dove has no will to eat carrion, a raven no will to eat the clean food of the dove. Put the nature of the dove into the raven, and it will eat the food of the dove. Satan could have no will for holiness. We speak it with reverence, God could have no will for evil. The sinner, in his sinful nature, could never have a will according to God. For this he must be born again. J. Denham Smith this is just what we have contended for throughout this chapter. The will is regulated by the nature. Among the decrees of the Council of Trent, 1563, which is the avowed standard of popery, we find the following. If any one shall affirm that man's free will, moved and excited by God, does not, by consenting, cooperate with God, the mover and exciter, so as to prepare and dispose itself for the attainment of justification, if, moreover, any one shall say that the human will cannot refuse complying, if it pleases, but that it is inactive and merely passive, let such a one be accursed. If any one shall affirm that since the fall of Adam man's free will is lost and extinguished, 
or that it is a thing titular, yea, a name, without a thing, and a fiction introduced by Satan into the church, let such a one be accursed. Thus those who today insist on the free will of the natural man believe precisely what Rome teaches on the subject, that Roman Catholics and Arminians walk hand in hand, may be seen from others of the decrees issued by the Council of Trent. If any one shall affirm that a regenerate and justified man is bound to believe that he is certainly in the number of the elect, which First Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5 plainly teaches, A.W.P., let such a one be accursed. If any one shall affirm with positive and absolute certainty that he shall surely have the gift of perseverance to the end, which John ten twenty eight through 30 assuredly guarantees, A.W.P., let him be accursed. In order for any sinner to be saved, three things were indispensable. God the Father had to purpose his salvation. God the Son had to purchase it. God the Spirit has to apply it. God does more than propose to us. Were he only to invite, every last one of us would be lost. This is strikingly illustrated in the Old Testament. In Ezra 1, 1-3 we read, Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. Here was an offer made, made to a people in captivity, affording them opportunity to leave and return to Jerusalem, God's dwelling place. Did all Israel eagerly respond to this offer? No, indeed. The vast majority were content to remain in the enemy's land. Only an insignificant remnant availed themselves of this overture of mercy. And why did they? Hear the answer of Scripture. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirit God had stirred up, to go up to build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, Ezra 1, five. In like manner God stirs up the spirits of his elect when the effectual call comes to them, and not till then do they have any willingness to respond to the divine proclamation. The superficial work of many of the professional evangelists of the last fifty years is largely responsible for the erroneous views now current upon the bondage of the natural man, encouraged by the laziness of those in the pew in their failure to prove all things, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. The average evangelical pulpit conveys the impression that it lies wholly in the power of the sinner whether or not he shall be saved. It is said that God has done his part, now man must do his. Alas, what can a lifeless man do? And man by nature is dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 If this were really believed, there would be more dependence upon the Holy Spirit to come in with his miracle-working power and less confidence in our attempts to win men for Christ. When addressing the unsaved, preachers often draw an analogy between God's sending of the gospel to the sinner and a sick man in bed with some healing medicine on a table by his side, all he needs to do is reach forth his hand and take it. But in order for this illustration to be in any wise true to the picture which, which Scripture gives us of the fallen and depraved sinner, the sick man in bed must be described as one who is blind, Ephesians 4.18, so that he cannot see the medicine, his hand paralyzed, Romans 5.6, so that he is unable to reach forth for it, 
and his heart not only devoid of all confidence in the medicine but filled with hatred against the physician himself john fifteen eighteen oh what superficial views of man's desperate plight are now entertained christ came here not to help those who were willing to help themselves but to do for his people what they were incapable of doing for themselves to open the eyes of the blind to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison-house isaiah forty two seven now in conclusion let us anticipate and dispose of the usual and inevitable objection why preach the gospel if man is powerless to respond why did the sinner come to christ if sin has so enslaved him that he has no power in himself to come reply we do not preach the gospel because we believe that men are free moral agents and therefore capable of receiving christ but we preach it because we are commanded to do so mark sixteen fifteen and though to them that perish it is foolishness yet unto us which are saved it is the power of god first corinthians one eighteen the foolishness of god is wiser than men and the weakness of god is stronger than men first corinthians one twenty five the sinner is dead in trespasses and sins ephesians two one and a dead man is utterly incapable of willing anything hence it is that they that are in the flesh the unregenerate cannot please god romans eight eight to fleshly wisdom it appears the height of folly to preach the gospel to those that are dead and therefore beyond the reach of doing anything themselves yes but god's ways are different from ours it pleases god by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe first corinthians one twenty one man may deem it folly to prophesy to dead bones and to say unto them o ye dry bones hear the word of the lord ezekiel thirty seven four ah but then it is the word of the lord and the words he speaks they are spirit and they are life john six sixty three wise men standing by the grave of lazarus might pronounce it an evidence of insanity when the lord addressed a dead man with the words lazarus come forth ah but he who thus spake and is himself the resurrection and the life and at his word even the dead live we go forth to preach the gospel then not because we believe that sinners have within themselves the power to receive the saviour it proclaims but because the gospel itself is the power of god unto salvation to every one that believeth and because we know that as many as were ordained to eternal life acts thirteen forty eight shall believe john six thirty seven ten sixteen note the shalls in god's appointed time for it is written thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power psalm one hundred ten verse three what we have set forth in this chapter is not a product of modern thought no indeed it is at direct variance with it it is those of the past few generations who have departed so far from the teachings of their scripturally instructed fathers in the thirty-nine articles of the church of england we read the condition of man after the fall of adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith and calling upon god wherefore we have no power to do good works pleasant and acceptable to god without the grace of god by christ preventing us being beforehand with us that we may have a good will and working with us when we have that good will article ten in the westminster catechism of faith adopted by the presbyterians we read the sinfulness of that state wherein to man fell consisteth in the guilt of adam's first sin the want of that righteousness wherein he was created and the corruption of his nature whereby he is utterly indisposed disabled and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil and that continually answer to question twenty five 
so in the baptist philadelphian confession of faith seventeen forty two we read man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation so as a natural man being altogether averse from good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto chapter nine end of chapter seven part two